I'll be reading from Romans 8, 18 through 39. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. <clears throat> for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, I invite you to turn with me to in God's Word to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll continue our study in this second prayer of Paul's in this letter. Ephesians chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 17 and 19, or through 19. Can you grasp the vastness of Christ's love? Can you grasp the vastness of Christ's love? Is it important? For you to be able to grasp the vastness of Christ's love. And you may be thinking, you know, aren't there, aren't there more practical topics that maybe we should consider? Well, Paul found it very practical. As Nick just read to us from Romans 8, uh, there as he concluded with that beautiful passage about Christ's love or God's love in Christ to us. And that's on the heels of him talking earlier in chapter 8 about how we, along with creation, groan with all of the things that we suffer. And, and so because of sin in this world. So he found it very practical to talk about the, the grandness, the vastness of Christ's love. We're going to see here in Ephesians chapter 4, when we get into what is the practical application section of the book, chapters 1 through 3, you know, we've said is the, the theological foundation uh, where he, that he's laying, and that's part of what we're doing and looking at here this morning. In 
to prepare us for what's coming in chapters 4 through 6. And that's where he's going to apply all of this wonderful truth uh, to the church there at Ephesus and then to us. And what he does first, when he gets into chapter 4, the first practical matter is going to be preserving unity in the church. And very practical, because that's not easy to do. It's something we have to work at and we have to practice doing, preserving unity. And so what he does here in in the second request we're going to look at this morning, uh, this second prayer request, is to show us what the basis is for the church's stability. And then the second matter he deals with is going to be building up the church. So when we get into a little bit further into chapter 4, he's going to talk about the spiritual gifts, and he's going to talk about how, you know, with, what the work that all of us have to do in building up this body of Christ, not just this one, but contributing to the overall church universal, if you will, the, of all the, the saints of all the ages. And, and so we will be building up the church. And so he prays here for believers to understand what makes their growth possible? What makes it possible for us to be able to contribute to building this church? So to answer those opening questions, yes, it is important for us to grasp the vastness of Christ's love. And yes, it is a highly practical study. Before we jump into the practical application section of Ephesians, we need to understand how important this subject is, this love of Christ. And then that demands that we be faithful to pray for one another. And that's what we're going to be spending time on here this morning is how we need to be praying for one another. Because we have you know, an awesome task or tasks ahead or before us that we need to be doing, and they're also impossible apart from Christ and His grace. And so we need to be praying for one another. And part of what that prayer is, is for us to be able to grasp the vastness of Christ's love. And we'll hopefully show how important it is for us to know that. You say, well, it's just knowledge. How can knowledge really help me in actually just rolling up my sleeves and getting to work? Well, we need... We will need that, and hopefully we'll see that today, why we need to be able to grasp the vastness of Christ's love. So here's what we must do as a body. Thank God that we are established in our love for each other, that we are established. We have this foundation of in, in our love for each other. And then pray that we together will grasp and experience the incomprehensible vastness of Christ's love. And there's a lot in that, I know. We're going to walk our way through and unpack that. We need to pray that we will together grasp and experience the incomprehensible vastness of Christ's love. Basically, it's this. We need to be able to understand how um, how immense, how beyond our ability to really wrap our minds around the love of Christ, we need to understand how how big that is. And we need to understand why that's important. You see, it's astonishing to realize that God has chosen, in His wisdom, we saw that earlier, remember? In His wisdom to use us to build His church. Okay. Again, this local body, but then also the universal body of Christ. He has chosen us, you and me, to do this. And it's astonishing. He's also not just decided to use us in the construction of that building. Remember, in um, the end of chapter 2, he, he laid on us that 
enormous, incredible, that mind-blowing concept that we are being built into a temple for God. The temple that He's going to dwell in for all of eternity. That we're going to be part of that. We're going to be stones, living stones in that temple. But then also, as we're going to see in the rest of this letter, we're going to not only be building blocks in that temple, but we're going to be the workers as well to build that temple. Okay, so now you see why we're going to need something that goes beyond us. We're going to need a lot that's outside of us to be able to do this. We must be people who pray for one another. We have a lot of hard work ahead of us in this temple construction. And it is very serious business. I don't know if you... Let that sink in. You know, if, if you were a, a contractor to, and you built you know, office buildings and you were contracted to build maybe, let's say that something happens and the White House gets wiped out. You know, or an earthquake happens and it falls, crumbles, okay? We have to build another one. You're the contractor that's chosen to build the new one. And along with that, the various extremely important, serious rooms in that building with the, the elevated security that needs to be there and everything. And so you're the person who has to see. It's very serious, Right? You couldn't go into this like, well, you know, I'll wing it. Yeah, we'll kind of figure it as we go along. That's not going to be it at all. You You can't think that way. It's too serious. Well, we're talking here about the eternal dwelling place of God, where He's going to be dwelling forever and ever. And that is this temple that we are being part of, being built into. So, that takes us into this second prayer request of Paul's. We looked at the first one last time. And you remember last time we started out, verses 14 through 15, Paul resumed his prayer that he had started. He, remember, after talking about that, that temple that we're going to be, we're being built into this temple, he starts to pray for them. Because as I've been saying, he realizes how important this job is. And so is, is he starting to pray? And he, oh, wait, wait a minute, I've got a little bit more I need to tell you. And so he, he had that little aside and went through and talked about the mystery of the church and, and all the wonderful truth there. But then now in verse 14, he gets back to his prayer. And, and so he resumed that prayer. And then we get into the actual prayer. And we started that last time. <clears throat> he made three w- requests for believers, verses 16 through 19. And those are prayers for strength, for love, and for fullness. Last time we looked at that first request for inner strength in verse 16 and the first part of verse 17. And then this morning, we'll look at his second request, that we might experience the incomprehensible vastness of Christ's love. Paul taught in Romans 5.5 that God's love has been poured in us, poured out in us. Okay, so it's poured out from God into us. So we've received his love. Then the Apostle John, in his first letter, he described this precious love that God has shown to us, the love he's given us, the love he's shown to us in salvation, sanctification, and ultimately in glorification. 
And then John concluded from that, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. First John 4, 11. And so that love, that love for each other is the first part of Paul's focus here when we're looking at this second request. And so to put this second request together, after breaking it all down, which is what we're getting ready to do, I put it all back together. I'm going to give it to you up front just so you know where we're going, okay, because we're going to get into all the pieces. Paul's praying this. Being rooted and grounded in your love for each other, I pray that you will have the strength to grasp and experience the vastness of Christ's love. So the foundation there, being rooted and grounded in your love for each other. And he says, I I pray that you will have the strength to grasp and experience the vastness of Christ's love. When he talks about their being able to grasp and experience the vastness, there is a part of that where we come to know by study. And so we study God's Word and we learn a lot about His love, the the love of God in Christ that comes to us. We learn a lot there. But we're going to see today that we can only, that only goes so far. You know, we get that theological foundation, that biblical truth. But the love of God is more than just book knowledge. You see, it's something that He does for us, to us. He gives to us and He works on our behalf. You see, and so it's something that we have to experience. And we do experience if we're believers in Jesus Christ. And so part of it is, yes, we study biblical teaching, but then we also experience it. And He's going to say here, by the love that we show to one another, okay? The love that He has shown to us and in us is part of it, but then there's also what we show to one another, okay? So first, thank God that we are established in our love for each other. Thank God that we are established in our love for each other. And let me back up the beginning of the actual prayer here in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven, and as we said, fatherhood, in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That was the first request, that strengthening, that inner strengthening. Now the second request, the end of verse 17, and that you, being rooted and grounded in Love. We're going to stop there for a minute because he's given us there the basis and that's going to prompt or should prompt our thanksgiving. Okay, So he uses these two terms, rooted and grounded. They're pretty straightforward. You probably could guess what's on the slide here, but rooted is an agricultural term. Uh, Think here, you know, firmly rooted like a tree. That's the idea. Okay, And then the other term is... Uh, grounded is an architectural term. Um, I'll get ahead of myself. So, our roots should be deeply anchored in God's love. That's the idea that He has here. So, we're rooted in love. So, our roots, if we are a tree, our roots go deep within the love of God. If the love of God is like the, the earth, and, and we root into that, and we anchor, um, which is one of the functions of a tree's roots. Grounded is an agricultural or architectural term. 
think here established like a stable building. So think of a building that has a really good foundation. Uh, it can withstand earthquakes and things like that. And um, you know, you think about Jesus talking about you know building not on sand which shifts, but on a good solid foundation. That's the idea here. We must build on the solid foundation of God's love. And in this first phrase, he's talking about, he doesn't modify it and say, rooted and grounded in Christ's love. And the fact that he does call out Christ's love next means that this is probably something a little different. So what is it? And I think what it is, as you look at the, the whole of Ephesians, is that it's our love for each other. And our love for each other must be deeply rooted, firmly founded. Now, what have we said about this word for love, the Greek word for love, agape? Well, in contrast to just normal, natural, human love, uh, there are different kinds of love. This one, agape, is not driven by impulse or external stimuli. In other words, you think about how um, so often you see this in the movies and TV and stuff and and you probably read it in stories and where somebody sees someone and they're so attractive that, oh, I'm in love with her. I'm in love with him. I love them. You know, it's that's external stimuli. It's because of the way they look or, wow, you've been so good to me because of that. I love you. OK, it's external stimuli. OK, agape doesn't work that way. Agape says, OK, you've never done anything good for me. And and yet I choose to love you. See, it comes from. Uh, this it's not an impulse it's not external rather it chooses to act as a free choice it's not compelled from the outside not coerced it comes from inside I must do this because of the love that's in me God's love is in me so it arises from within the person okay typically when we you know say I love you you know in this life in this world a lot of times it's there's something about you that I find lovely, you know, and worth loving. Agape comes from inside, not outside. And so it says that even if you're unworthy, and if you haven't figured it out, you've heard me say this before, every one of us is unworthy. We, we're not worthy of each other's love. We're not worthy of God's love. Okay? How can we love each other? How can God love us when we are unworthy? It's because agape comes from within the lover, the one doing the loving, not the one being receiving the love. And so agape can love the unworthy. And what it does is it seeks the highest good of the other person. It gives, it serves. Those are, you find those. For God so loved the world that he gave, right? And you read other passages that talk about that giving or that serving in, in words uh, synonyms of those. And Paul said already in chapter 1, verse 15, that the Ephesians had this love for one another. So that's why he says here, having been, in other words, you have been rooted and grounded in love, the love you have for each other. And so, love provides the stability in the body of Christ. And that enables both the uh, us to do the work of building but also it provides, it maintains the stability of the building itself. Because as we're building this, if, if we have problems with loving one another and we don't love each other as we should, then the building isn't going to be stable, at least this, right? So when Christ is ruling in our hearts, love will replace selfishness as the driving force 
in our personal lives. Because worldly love, human natural love, is basically selfish. And at its core, whereas agape is selfless and it is other-centered. Okay, So we learn to be less selfish. And so this love becomes a driving force in our personal lives. And then what happens is God does that in each one of us. All together then, we... Uh, love will become the driving force of our life together as a church. You see, so he's going to work. He isn't going to work in us corporately before he works in us individually. You see, he works in us individually. And then that contributes to the corporate. And then the corporate then contributes back to the individual. And it is a wonderful, blessed cycle. Well, with that foundation being rooted and grounded in love, Paul then prayed this way. So picking up. Again, the end of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love, and here's the actual request, and it's actually in two parts, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. So, number two, pray that we together will grasp the vastness of Christ's love. So it's not just an individual, each one of you do this, but we all together should do this, and it's a work we do together. Pray that we all together will grasp the vastness of Christ's love. So let's talk about these two words, able and comprehend. Able just means to be strong enough to do something. And so here we have, he's already talked about strength, remember that first request. And now he uses a little more subtle word for strength, but it's talking about that we are strong enough to do something. The word comprehend means to seize or to lay hold of something when it's used literally. And and so then, uh, like, for example, Paul used it in 1 Corinthians 9.24, talking about runners. When they run the race, they run, and, and sometimes we soften it in our English translations, they run in order to win. But he actually says in Greek, they run in order to take hold of it, you know, to, or as we sometimes will say, to take the prize. Okay, so that the one who wins, and you don't see that today because, you know, we, we postpone the prize till later, but they, they run because they want to take hold of that prize. And you remember back, you know, in those days, it was a, an, like an olive lee, uh, branch kind of wreath sort of thing. So that idea of seizing it to make it their own. So they would also use that word, though, to talk about our thinking. And when it's used for thinking, it means to understand, to comprehend, or, if you will, think of your mind as as your hand and just being able to mentally grasp something. And and we we talk about that. We use that same picture, don't we? We, I, you know, I can't quite wrap my head around this. It's kind of like you know being able to wrap my arms around something. Now I've got it, right? And and so we apply that to our mind, and that's what they're doing here. Okay. So being rooted and grounded in love, it's possible now for us to be made strong enough to mentally lay hold of the vastness of biblical love. And you're like, okay, I need strength to be able to lay hold of this. Yes, you do. And that's what we're going to try to develop here. And and this really should be this idea of discovering the vastness of Jesus' love is, is a lifelong study. It's not something that we ever, as we're going to see in a minute, you, you can't exhaust it. And partly because, mainly because God is infinite. And so his love would be infinite. But it's not a study that you do only on your own. You don't. 
get to say, you know, I'm going to do the Lone Ranger Christian thing or, you know, go back way back in church history, you know, to those the hermits and stuff. They're like, I'm going to go out and get away from people. You know, how many times do you think that? You know, if I just didn't have to deal with people, right? And, and so you think, well, yeah, if we just could go away and get away from everyone, things would be great, you know. It, no, because you just take your own sin with you, you know. But the, the, we can't... Be that and just study on our own. It's something, it's a study we do together. Look again at verse 18. That we may be able to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth, length, height, and depth? So it's with all the saints. And the idea here first is to the local church. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. And the the Jews and Gentiles have been put together in this local church. And he says, okay, you together as a church, that's one way that you are learning this together, this love of Christ. Another would be uh, other Christians in your life. Okay, so because with all the saints. So we think about how you know, our brother has gone over to Ukraine. And so uh, among the, the team, the other believers, they're seeing the love of Christ just as they show love for each other. But then they show love to the people in Ukraine, to the believers over there. You see, and then they see those believers ministering, and they see the love of Christ. Both these groups, they're seeing even more the vastness of the love of Christ. So it's gone beyond just the walls of their own local church, their own church family. They're they're seeing the love of Christ shown uh, to one another in the vastness. Hearing each other's testimonies, for example. It's one of the glorious things about us sharing our testimonies is we get to see what happens is our, um, our perspective of God's love expands with each testimony, right? And each time that we actually do love, we, we show Christ's love to someone, it expands, okay? which is what we're doing here. We're uh, trying to understand this. But we've already seen this concept twice in Ephesians, this idea of all the saints. And, and it there referred to, and I think ultimately here refers to all believers of all the ages. So all of us together, that we would know this, we'd discover this with all the saints. And the idea is that when Christ's church is complete, we will all together see how vast His love really is. So you think about, remember at the end of chapter 2, that temple that we're being built into. And the idea, the picture is this, that so when that temple is finished, God's holy temple for all eternity is finished, then you and I, believers, will be living stones in the construction of that building. And so whether it's like that, you know, New Jerusalem cube of John's in Revelation or what it's going to look like, you know, we don't know for sure, but... Picture in your minds this this huge building that's made up of stones, and each one of us and all the believers of all the ages, you know, all the way from Abel forward to whoever's last, they're all together built into that building. And then as we, you know, let's say that you're on the wall, one of the walls, and, and you're looking in back into the building, and you see in the middle, the center of that building is our God. That we that he is inhabiting that building. That's the picture that he was giving us there at the end of chapter two, and so he's he's still got that in the back of his mind here, maybe even more the forefront of his mind as he's talking about this. 
And as we, we look in and we see that, we see our God, but then we also look in, in this enormous building. Because you think about all the millions of believers that will have been saved by that time when it's finished. And I don't know what the count's going to be. It's going to be at least in the millions. And we're going to see, wow, how vast is Christ's love. That's the idea. To look at that and just to, you know, we have that glimpse a little bit into the future. And what he's saying is when all of the saints are together, that's his phrase, with all the saints. And when we're all together, you know, we say, wow, there's Abel and Abraham and there's Sarah, you know, and there's Ruth and Naomi and, you know, all of those that Christ died for. You know, and it's a beautiful picture that that he's he's developing here. As we behold that temple made up of all saints from all the ages, we will stand in awe of the love that moved Jesus to die for so many. You know, I mean, we could stand in awe just here. You know, I look out over all of you, and I've got the privilege of seeing all these people that Jesus died for. You know, and, and that's amazing. But multiply that by a, a huge factor. And one day we'll see this innumerable company that were bought by the blood of the Lamb. And then they're built into this temple, whatever that's going to look like. F.F. Bruce explained that the deep things of God are more likely to be apprehended by His children in fellowship one with another than in isolation. Again, this goes against the Lone Ranger Christian idea. Okay? we're going to discover these things more in fellowship with one another because there's an experiential aspect to it. It's not all experience. We have to have the doctrinal foundation, the biblical foundation, and that is what's going to guide us, and that's what guides our experience and says, oh, that experience, that doesn't know. We measure our experience by the Word of God, but these things like the love of God are experienced. They're meant to be experienced. Well, what about these four measurement terms, if you will? Breadth, length, height, and depth. Together, they all point to the immensity and vastness of Christ's love. What he's saying here is that Christ's love exceeds our grasp in every direction. You know, and so I, I plan to use this um, picture of if you're standing on the beach at an ocean and you look out across it, you can't see the other side and you realize how vast it is. Now, you can't, by your eyes, tell how many miles that is because you can't see the other side and you can't see that far anyway, right? Much less, you know, guess how, how far that is. But you get the idea that this ocean is huge, it goes beyond my ability to grasp how how wide it is. Okay, and so I'm deciding now to, to modify that a little bit. So, you know, you're on a ship out in the middle of one of those oceans. Can't see any of the shores. So in every direction you look, it's beyond your ability to grasp how vast it is, but that's kind of the point. 
Because you look at that ocean and you say, wow, our Creator is awesome. I mean, He's greater than this ocean, which blows my mind just to think how big this ocean is. God, And so what He's saying is God's love exceeds our ability to grasp it in every direction. No matter which way you go, we can't measure it. John Stott, talking about... Okay, let me back up. So, with this 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 concept, this fourfold, you know, uh, breadth, length, height, and depth, uh, there have been a lot of suggestions throughout church history as to what that means. You know, and some of them, you, you know, you just have to laugh. You know, it's like... Our brothers and sisters in Christ, they were trying to wrap their head around that and, you know, trying to grasp it. And you're like, oh, boy, they that that's kind of fanciful. But uh, and John Stott points out that, you know, yeah, we need to be careful what we say this means. But he says, but we still have to draw some application from that. Right. And so he shows us, he says, okay, we can't take those dimensions too literally as far as it, like, for example, and this one wasn't too far off the mark, but one commentator said, well, it's describing that in New Jerusalem, you know, the temple or something like that. Well, kind of, that's kind of the idea, but he doesn't actually say that. So we shouldn't go so far as to say that's what it means. We can say that might be something he had in mind. It might be an application, but it's not what it means. And so what what Stott does is this. He says that, uh, it, you know, it's right to show some ways to apply this or maybe, you know, Paul's using these general words so that we use our imagination not to say what it means, but to what it might apply to. He says, it seems to me legitimate to say that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind. In other words, Christ died for all uh, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, not for all men, but it's broad enough, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. You see, so I, I thought that was good. Again, that's not what this means... What it means is, it's beyond our God's Christ's love is beyond our grasp to comprehend in any direction we go. Well, I can see the width of it. No, you can't. Well, I can see the height. No, you see that. That's what it means. It goes far beyond. Which this is a worship idea, right? Just like when you stand at the ocean. Of course, you don't worship the ocean, but you worship the Creator of that ocean. Or you look at this enormous mountain. And you worship the Creator who made it. And that's when we think about the love of Christ and how, you know, it just goes beyond our ability to really plumb the depths of it, for example. We worship. Okay, so part two of his prayer, or number three here. Pray that we together will experience the wonder of Christ's love for us. So you hopefully certainly get the idea of how this is really a job that's too big for any one of us, and in fact, it's still too big for all of us. But when we're all together, we're going to, you know, have a, a better, fuller grasp of it. We still won't exhaust it because God is inexhaustible. He's infinite. But pray that we will together experience the wonder of Christ's love for us. Verse 19 and so just kind of a second way of making this prayer. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Okay? And I'll save the rest for next time. That's the third prayer request. 
So as we said, biblical love seeks the highest good of the one who's loved. We've already seen God show this love to us in Ephesians, haven't we? Back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says, In love he predestined us to be adopted into his family. You see, so God, in love for us, we were, st- we were his enemies, we were dead in our sin, we were, you know, we'd broken his law, all that. But in love he predestined us to be in his family, to be adopted into his family. You see, he's seeking our highest good. We also saw in chapter 2, while we were dead in sin, verses 1 through 3, verse 4, that beautiful verse, He made us alive together with Christ. There's the love of God. What was our need? We were dead in sin. We were going to be alienated from God forever. And we were going to be under His wrath forever. And we had a need for rescue. We had a need to be brought to life. And so while we were dead in our sins, He made us alive together with Christ. That's the love of God that's been shown to us. And I want to have more. I had to, you know, confess to the the, uh, tech guys. I had a lot of quotes today. And I'm going to have a bunch here coming up. But they're they're so good, you know. Um, Puritan John Flavel. And and this is... I, I love how, you know, as I'm reading... Books for my my devotional time uh, in the mornings. There's so often it's like, oh, this is great. I got to put this in my sermon, you know, and uh, it's just so good. So it's a blessing to my soul. It's a nourishment for my soul. And then I'm just like, okay, then I need to share it with you all. So this this happened this week. I was reading. So Puritan John Flavel wrote, "The gift of Christ is the highest and fullest display of the love of God to sinners that was ever made from eternity to them." The highest and fullest display. When he gave Christ for us, the highest and fullest display. The greatness of God's love in Christ is seen, as he goes on, another quote, is seen that in giving him, as the Father giving Christ, he gave the richest jewel in his cabinet. I love the Puritans because they use this very colorful, picturesque language. It just helps us to put into words things that are often hard to put into words like this. And so I love this. The the richest jewel in his cabinet. A mercy of the greatest worth and most inestimable value. Heaven itself is not so valuable and precious as Christ is. He is better than the half of heaven. What an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Christ. Put the beauty of 10,000 paradises, like the Garden of Eden, into one. Put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet it should be less than that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Paul's trying to drive home to us. When we think about the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ, that when God gave us Christ, He gave Him for us to die for us. He was showing us that this is how much I love you. And you know, I know sometimes we doubt that. We wonder, you know, God, do you love me? Maybe how much do you love me? And we need to go back to passages like this and remind ourselves that God says, This is how much I love you. I gave my son. 
The most precious thing there was to me, I gave him for you. I gave him to die in your place so that you could be in my family. So Paul prayed that we would come to know Christ's love more and more. And the knowledge that he's talking about here is has the idea of experiencing. And so it's experiencing that love. So when we put together all of our experiences of Christ's love, we will better realize how precious and how vast it is. You see, because each one of us, we can think about and testify, oh, let me tell you what God has done in my life, how He has saved me and how He is sanctifying me and, and all the ways He's showing His love to me. And that's a grand thing. But then when we all of us put that together, we get to see that the picture broadens, doesn't it? It expands how vast His love is. But remember what Paul said is that, you know, it's going to be all the saints of all the ages. You know, and if, if we were to turn that into picture form, and every one of us tell all the testimonies of God's love in our life, and you multiply that by the millions of all of us together, and you see, you know, if, if in heaven, if He were to put that up on this enormous screen, it would be so big we wouldn't be able to see the edges of it. And that's what He's trying to drive home. So it's important for us to share Christ's love together in the body of Christ. Whether it's to, to actually love one another, meeting needs, showing Christ's love to each other, or it's, it's testifying of God's love. We need to do that together. And as a result, we see a much big, bigger picture of His love to us all. Again, think of that temple when it's finished and, and how immense, how vast Christ's love will then appear to us. So Paul asked God to enable them to more fully experience and know Christ's love for them. But he said, he recognized, you know, but still it surpasses knowledge. In other words, you can study and study and study and you're not going to get to the end of it. We have to experience it to fully appreciate it and then still we won't get to the end of it. And here's kind of a fun exercise for you. So uh, later, try to describe honey to someone and have that other person pretend that they've never tasted honey and try to describe honey to them. Because as you do, you really won't be able to to do, a, a, you know, give it a fair shot. You'll try, but it's like, you'll just give up and you'll say, you just have to taste it for yourself, right? You know, and, well, it's honey, it's sweet, it, it, it's honey, it's honey-like, you know, it has a honey-like, you know, consistency, right? It, just taste it. And that's what he's talking about here. Yes, we can study, we can learn a lot about God's love you know, from a, just a knowledge standpoint, but we have to experience it as well. We'll never exhaust the knowledge of His love. But as we come to know that love together, our limited experiences will all be put together and that shared experience helps us to grasp even more the precious nature of this love toward us. Okay, back to John Flavel. He calls us to adore the love of the Father and the Son who bid so high for your souls. Isn't that beautiful? The Father and the Son, they bid so high for your souls. How high did they bid? Christ. That was their bid. 
God the Father and the Son wanted our souls. And they wanted them so much that they bid Christ, if you will. We also see how vast it is when we put together all the experiences of all the saints. And Flavel explained that God's love toward us reveals the incomparable sweetness of Christianity that shows poor sinners such a fair foundation to rest their trembling consciences upon. Just these beautiful quotes of these men who, out of great suffering, both themselves and the churches that they pastored, and the, seeing the suffering of their people, through all of that, they came out with this, these beautiful ways of explaining God's Word and, and describing the love of God. And When your conscience trembles, as he says, rest in that fair foundation of Christ's love. So, thank God for causing us to be rooted and grounded in love for each other. That's what he started with. And then pray for one another. That we will all together grasp how precious and how vast is Christ's love. So we turn to the Lord's Supper. We sometimes think of the cross as being for me. And that's right. We should think that. But it isn't just for me. It is also for all the saints. Oh, how precious it will be to behold. How astonishing it will be to behold all of those that the cross has saved. Again, that that temple when it's finished. And you, a stone in the wall, you look out and you see our God in the middle dwelling in this temple. But you look at the wall across from you and off here to the side and above you and below you and, and the root, all the parts of the building, these living stones, these believers. And one of the things that will, will prompt us to such exuberant worship is to say, wow, look at all those that the cross saved, that the cross of Jesus saved. That is what we need to understand because we have a hard job ahead of us. We have an impossible task ahead of us. We need to see that, oh, but it's, it's not impossible for the love of Christ. Can people come to know the Lord? Well, not if it's left up to us. But the love of Christ can do it. It can arrest them and save them. Can the church be built up? Not if it's left up to us. But God can work in us. He's given us His love. That love shown to one another. And by that, we will build up the body of Christ.